0: Three, two, one. Welcome on in to the Double Check Podcast. I am Colin.
1: And I'm Brett. Well, I'm kind of a mobile phone version, but you know.
0: This is a very special edition of the Double Check Podcast. We have Brett on remote, so he is calling in by phone, um, and we are going to be recording it that way. It's going to uh, make for an interesting coin flip, I think, but uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I think I'm the one uh, tossing it and you're the one calling it this week, so I, I really will call it, call it honestly here.
1: I guess I trust you enough to do that, I guess. All
0: right, well, <laughs> I would hope so. I just want to say, you know, this is, I think, our sixth episode that we're going to be recording, and, um, you know, I feel like we've gotten a lot of uh, really good feedback. Do you feel that way as well, Brett?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, I was uh, just—the reason why I'm remoting in is because I had life group tonight with some people from my church, and we were sitting around talking about the podcast, and they are really excited about it, and they uh, like—they are all fanboys of Colin. I didn't even get any love. Colin got all the love. But we are getting good feedback, and I've actually got a question for us tonight whenever it comes time for that.
0: Oh, okay. Well, yeah, we'll do that in... Uh, I guess we can add listener mail segment at the end there. We haven't done that yet. We've been waiting for it. Make sure you send us your comments, check podcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to us in person if we are uh, somebody that you know personally. I did also want to share this. Uh, I don't know if this came from somebody that we know personally. It came from somebody on Apple Podcasts who goes by the name fidget Two. And I thought that this was an interesting comment. I wanted to share it. Uh, She said, uh, she or he, whoever fidget is, I am intrigued by their format. Each host poses a prompt. The other challenges the idea and discussion ensues. I enjoyed the concept of questioning things because it makes it okay to differ and feel safe to ask questions. Then she she or he writes, on a completely superficial note, the first thing I care about when it comes to listening to a podcast is the most superficial thing there could be. Do I like the host's voices? These two guys' voices are calming yet interesting. And first of all, thank you very much, Fidget2, and I gotta say, Brett, that is very accurate because your voice really is, it just soothes me.
1: Uh, Well, I appreciate that, but like I was saying a second ago, I have a friend, a different friend from the one tonight, who was talking about, you know, he thought that we had radio voices and he thought that my voice was great and all that kind of stuff. Well, he comes up last week and he says, "You know what? I think I'm changing. I think I like to hear, I like to listen to Colin talk a little bit more." So, Colin, you are just—you uh, are capturing hearts. You
0: well, that? I, I, that's uh, that's news to me because most of the uh, most of the people that uh, I, I've tried to get their hearts. Well, I guess I have captured some people's hearts, but uh, I don't know. Uh, we'll 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 see how it continues here as uh, as we're gonna. Um, be moving right through the Christmas season and then on into uh, into the new year, and I, I just I really love to hear your feedback, and I'm I'm excited that we've generated uh, the the buzz that we have.
1: Yeah, me too, and I'm excited about the next few weeks that we have coming up. We're going to be talking a lot about the holiday season, uh, and we're going to start it today uh, with Thanksgiving. But we're gonna we're gonna to touch on Hanukkah. We're gonna do a lot with Christmas. I think even if you aren't a christian and if you are a christian i think this will be uh, a lot of fun for all involved
0: yeah i agree Uh, and so make sure that you send us your comments again double check podcast at gmail.com leave us a review and make sure it is a five-star review because otherwise we'll just think that you're a hater um that's right all right so should we get into it here brett
1: Yeah, let's get into it. Let's get that coin flip.
0: All right, here we go with the coin flip. Uh, I'm going to be the flipper, and you're going to be the caller uh, for today's episode. I think
1: I'm going to call heads.
0: Heads. All right, so there's the flip, catch, turn, and it is tails because Mount Rushmore, not General Washington, is looking at me. So uh, on the honor system, it is tails. I have won the toss, and I am going to defer to you, Mr. Cox.
1: All right, so... It is the week of Thanksgiving, and Colin is going to talk about Thanksgiving, so I'm not going to really touch on that. But as we talk about the intersection of American culture with how we've erased some religious aspects of Thanksgiving, which is what Colin's about to talk about, I thought we'd come at it from a different angle, how we've inadvertently weaved culture into the church, And I want to thank my father-in-law for the inspiration to take on the topic that I'm going to take on today. I'm not even sure how we started talking about it, but he asked me a question about the Christian flag, of all things, and I really didn't know how to answer him or what to really think about it. I haven't thought about the Christian flag since I was in a small, rural Baptist church, and I was about five years old. I remember thinking that it was a little bit odd then, seeing the Christian flag, sitting right up next to the United States flag and it really just didn't seem right to me even whenever I was that young now after I've thought about it and I've wrestled with it I think I've resolved to not advocate for its use and I'll get to why here in just a little bit there's a pretty cool little story about how this Christian flag came about and it started in the late 1800s but I'm gonna save some time I'm gonna tell you to Google the history of the Christian flag but there are some noteworthy things that I found in my research. And the idea of it was that it was kind of a mistake. It just kind of came about on a whim. Its origins are mostly Protestant, and it's definitely American. The flag was adopted by what they used to call the Federal Council of Churches, a multi denominational group of American church organizations. And it was adopted in 1942. The historical timing of it is intriguing to me as it comes on the heels of the nationalism that embodied world war one and then the turmoil of world war ii anyways i think it's important to realize that this symbol this christian flag originated in very recent history in the grand scheme of things and whenever there's something new that arises in christianity you have to seriously stop and ask yourself How did nobody in all of historical Christianity think that something like this was important before? You're probably thinking uh, there have been Christian flags before. In my estimation, the flags you may be thinking about really belong to individual nations. They had Christian symbolism, sure, but the current Christian flag is unique. It represents an entire group of people apart part from any organized nation state or a specific denomination. It is said to represent all of Christendom. There hasn't been anything, at least what I can gather, that boasts that claim. So I think we should be skeptical of using the Christian flag and I have two reasons. The first reason is that the Christian flag is inherently tied to the United States of America. If we want something to be truly universal, it may do well to have it not tied so specifically to a nation who, for some, claims it is God's new chosen people. And that's a big claim, but if you don't believe me, just Google, America, God's chosen people, and you'll see an abundance of material that's been written. Just the fact that there is that much material and discourse around the issue should be troublesome to us. The flag having its origin here Is strike number one against it this may be a vain observation and not really rooted in reason but hear me out the next reason that it's tied to America is that the colors of it are the same colors as America's colors the good old red white and blue make an appearance you may say but Brett all the colors have Christian significance Well, why don't you tell me what the first thing that comes to your mind is whenever I say these four words. Christian, red, white, blue. You don't think about what the colors mean in relation to Christ. You think about the good old USA, strike number two. And did you know that there's a pledge to the Christian flag? Where do you think they got the idea for that from? The USA. Listen to the original pledge to the flag. I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands, one brotherhood, uniting all mankind in service and in love. Does it sound familiar? Its syntax is copied almost verbatim from the pledge to the American flag. Strike number three. Okay, Brett, I get it, but you can't discredit something based on where it came from. Well, you, dear listener, are very astute. Discrediting something based entirely on its origin Is committing what is called the genetic fallacy. And a fallacious argument isn't really an argument at all. And I'm not setting out to do that. So let me explore reason number two we should be skeptical of using the Christian flag. So here's reason number two four ways I think use of the Christian flag impedes the gospel message. Number one, it makes it about a group of people. Flags are used to unite a people, give an identity to a people. Although we are the church that God is working to build, we don't need a banner to unite under. We have the banner of the broken Savior raised on the cross. To add anything more would detract from Christ. Number two, it places the church on the same footing as earthly nations. Nation states have flags. Cities have flags. To have a flag for the capital C church is, in a way, placing it on the same level as countries. Some people think that giving it a flag is building the church up. Well, I say the exact opposite. It is relegating the church to power and dominion measured by human hands when it is so much more than that. Number three, it hints at earthly conquest instead of spiritual conquest. In the same vein as what we were just talking about, a Christian flag brings the battle for the soul down to the battle for the pole. What pole are we flying the flag on now? We better get to keep it there. How many times have you heard that in American discourse? We may not be waging war for territory, but we are waging political war for political points. Number four, it hints at exclusivity when we as Christians want to be the most inclusively exclusive movement on the planet and so as we build it further we see that use of the christian flag creates boundaries with non-christians and other christians too whenever they're really not necessary paul in 1 corinthians 9 20-22 talks about becoming like the people he was trying to witness to that doesn't mean that he gives up his christ-honoring walk with god but it did mean that he tore down man-made barriers and for me I think the use of the Christian flag is a man-made barrier, and my hope is that if and when it is necessary, we are able to let go of this symbol for the sake of the gospel.
0: I gotta, first of all, thank you for bringing this topic uh, to the forefront here. This is not something that I was familiar with, and I found it pretty interesting to, to do a little bit of research on the the history and the background. But uh, what I I found was, uh, you know, it was, like you said, uh, been around since just uh, at the end of the 19th century, but it wasn't widely adopted until 1942. And looking at history, um, that's right in the middle of World War II. It's mere months after the devastating attack on Pearl Harbor. So the U.S. was uh, at a point in its history where uh, they were gearing up to join the allied forces in Europe and in the Pacific. And the horrors of the Holocaust was something that was becoming more and more evident. So uh, in this time of turmoil, it's a time where evil had been prevailing on the earth. And understandably, people of faith would be looking for an icon for something to believe in, something to bring them all together in a hopeful, uplifting way. So this flag could be something that, you know, not only brings people together, but also perhaps reminds them of Daniel 4.17, where it says, "...so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets, them over, the low, sets over them the lowliest of people." So if the flag can be that icon and can perhaps be that reminder, my question to you then is, what's the problem with that?
1: If it's used to unite people, I don't see a problem with it just with that. I think where I start to take issue with it is whenever it starts to do the opposite. And I started to to touch on this at the end of, of my thesis. It's how it's continued to be used after that. I I think I understand what the intention was whenever it first started, but as we've gone throughout the 20th century and now into the 21st century, it has become a rallying cry, not for something, but against other things, if that makes sense. And so in that way, it's built up barriers between... Christendom and the rest of the world. And yes, the church should be separate. Like it should be noticeable that the church is not the world. But we don't need a flag to do that. We do it in the way that other people see us live our lives. That is the is the ultimate banner, and the cross of Jesus is the ultimate banner and the implications of the gospel. And so as we've used the flag to kind of mark our territory, it has had the opposite effect of what what perhaps the original adopters of it wanted it to do.
0: Now, you, you mentioned that the flag has its own Pledge of Allegiance also. So if you consider that the, the Christian flag and its pledge are designed to honor the Lord Jesus, that they're intended to be a reminder of Christ and our commitment to Him— I know you talked about the the barriers that that can create, but is there something sinful about displaying a Christian flag or reciting a pledge to it?
1: That's a great question. And I don't think there is anything sinful to displaying the flag, per se. I do, and I'm not going to claim to have answers on this one, but in the recitation of the pledge, if that pledge elevates to a type of liturgy that's non biblical, not that it's a biblical but non biblical, then I do think that we have to we have to look and see if it's sinful. And while we're on the pledge, just an aside, in in my research, the pledge itself is not actually a uniting force because different denominations have had to edit the pledge to match their theology. And so in an effort to unite the entire church with the pledge and the flag, we actually cause divisions and people have taken it on their own and it's just had an opposite effect not only between the Christians and the in the rest of the world but also within Christendom itself.
0: So is there any any final thoughts, anything you wanted to add from that? What What are you going towards next? Any, any concluding uh, statements that you want to give uh, regarding the Christian flag?
1: I think I've covered all that I want to cover with the Christian flag. I think that's going to continue to marinate in my head a little bit, and I would love to hear some thoughts from our listeners about that, because it it that really does depend on where you went to church uh, growing up or where you go to church now, the use of it and what it means. Some people care about it a lot, and then some people, like myself, haven't thought about it in a long time, or some people don't didn't even know what it was. I would I would love to get some different perspectives on that. But as I move forward, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Jewish people, and with that, I'm going to talk about not getting frustrated whenever people don't believe in Jesus or don't believe in the Messiah. And so that's where we're going to go next week.
0: All right. Well, uh, should we talk a little bit about Thanksgiving, Brett? Yeah, I would love to. I'm pretty excited about Thanksgiving. You know, we had, my, my life group, we had like a Thanksgiving potluck last night and I made a turkey, and people brought sides and stuff, and it was it was really awesome, and uh, it got me excited for, you know, we're three days away from Thanksgiving, and every year our country celebrates this holiday called Thanksgiving. And if you grew up not really knowing the history of it, it's just a day dedicated to eating turkey and watching football. But if you understand the origins of uh, this holiday, You understand that um, this day, perhaps more than any other on our calendar, provides a chance to re-examine what uh, America is really all about spiritually. Now when it comes to Thanksgiving, there are actually numerous claims to the first Thanksgiving. One of the earliest recorded celebrations occurred a half-century before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth in 1621 when a small colony of French Huguenots established a settlement near present-day Jacksonville, Florida. And on June 30th of 1564, their leader, René de Laudonniere recorded, quote, "...we sang a psalm of thanksgiving to God, beseeching him that it would please him to continue his accustomed goodness towards us." Then in 1610, after a very difficult winter called the Starving Time, The colonists at Jamestown, Virginia, called for a time of thanksgiving, and this was after the original company of 409 colonists had been reduced to just 60 survivors. The colonists prayed for help that finally arrived by a ship filled with food and supplies from England, and they held a prayer service to give thanks. But the Thanksgiving celebration was not originally commemorated yearly. An annual commemoration of thanks came nine years later in a different part of Virginia, when on December 4th of 1619, 38 colonists landed at a place they called Berkeley 100 in Virginia. And an instruction in their ship's charter read, quote, We ordained that the day of our ship's arrival in the land of Virginia shall be yearly and perpetually kept holy as a day of thanksgiving to Almighty God. Now, none of these Thanksgiving celebrations was actually an official national pronouncement, and that's because there was no nation that existed at the time, but they do support the claim that the celebrations were religious. Thanksgiving began as a holy day created by a community of God-fearing Puritans, sincere in their desire to set aside one day each year, especially to thank the Lord for his many blessings. And the day they chose came after the harvest at a time of year when farm work was light so that it fit the natural rhythm of rural life. But one of the most famous Thanksgiving stories is the one of the Plymouth Colony. As for the pilgrims there, we can hardly imagine the burdens that they endured to make a new life for themselves in a new land but their turning point began one Friday in the middle of March of 1621. That's when an Indian, wearing nothing but a leather loincloth, strolled up the main street to their common house, and to their startled white faces boomed in flawless, perfect English, Welcome, visitors! His name was Samoset. He was a Sagamore, or chief, of the Algonquins, and he had been visiting the area for the previous eight months, having learned English from various fishing captains who had put into the main shore over the years. He returned the following Thursday with another native who also spoke English, and his life story is no less extraordinary than the saga of Joseph in the book of Genesis. His name was Tisquantum, also called Squanto. See, back in 1605, Squanto and four other Indians were taken captive, sent to England, and taught English to provide intelligence background on the most favorable places to establish colonies. After nine years in England, Squanto was able to return to Plymouth on Captain John Smith's voyage in 1614. But when he returned, Squanto was captured by a notorious Captain Thomas Hunt, and along with 27 others, he was sent to Malaga, Spain, a major slave trading port. There, Squanto was bought and rescued by some local friars and introduced to the Christian faith. So you can kind of see the hand of God in his life story here, preparing him for the role that he ultimately would play at Plymouth. Eventually, he was able to attach himself to an Englishman bound for London and then joined uh, up with the family of a wealthy merchant, and ultimately he embarked for New England in 1619. But he stepped ashore six months before the pilgrims landed in 1620. And when he did, he received the most tragic blow of his life when he discovered that not a man, woman, or child from his own tribe was left alive. And that's because during the previous four years, a mysterious plague had broken out among them, killing every last one of them so complete was the devastation that the neighboring tribes had shunned the area ever since and that's what allowed the pilgrims to settle in a cleared area that belonged to no one their nearest neighbors the wampanoags were about 50 miles to the southwest so stripped of his identity and his reason for living squanto wandered aimlessly until he joined up with the wampanoags when squanto met the pilgrims though He later brought another person to meet them, and Massasoit, the sachem, or chief of the Wampanoags, entered into a peace treaty of mutual aid with the Plymouth colony that was to last as a model for 40 years. When Massasoit and his entourage left, Squanto stayed. He had found his reason for living, because these settlers were helpless in the ways of the wilderness. Squanto taught them how to catch eels, how to stalk deer, how to plant pumpkins, how to refine maple syrup, how to discern both edible herbs and those good for medicine. But perhaps the most important thing he taught them was how to plant corn. What they did is they hoed six-foot squares in towards the center, and then they put down four or five kernels, and then fertilizing the corn with fish, three fish in each square, pointing towards the center like a spokes. They would then have to guard the field against the wolves who would try to steal the fish but by the summer they had 20 full acres of corn that would save every one of their lives squanto also taught them how to exploit the pelts of the beaver which was in plentiful supply and in great demand throughout europe he even guided the trading to ensure that they got the full prices for their top quality pelts so the corn became their physical deliverance The beaver pelts would be their economic deliverance. Well, the pilgrims were a grateful people, grateful to God, grateful to the Wampanoags, and grateful to Squanto. So Governor Bradford declared a day of public thanksgiving to be held in October. Massasoit was invited and unexpectedly arrived a day early along with 90 of his friends. To feed such a crowd would cut deeply into their stores for the winter, but they had all learned through all their travails, that God could be trusted implicitly. And it turned out that the natives did not come empty-handed. They brought five dressed deer and more than a dozen fat wild turkeys. They helped with the preparations, teaching the pilgrim women how to make hoe cakes and tasty pudding out of cornmeal and maple syrup. And they also showed them how to make popcorn. So the next time you go to a movie and you enjoy some popcorn, you should remember Samoset, Squanto, and the Indians because these are all things that they, they taught us. Now, the pilgrims in turn provided many vegetables from their gardens, carrots, onions, turnips, parsnips, cucumbers, radishes, beets, cabbages, and using some of their precious flour and the summer fruits which the Indians had dried, the pilgrims introduced them to blueberry, cherry, and apple pie. And along with sweet wine made from wild grapes, it was, in fact, a feast. The Pilgrims and the natives happily competed in shooting contests, foot races, wrestling contests. And things went so well, and Massasoit showed no inclination of leaving, that the first Thanksgiving was extended for an additional three days. The moment that stood out the most in the Pilgrims' memory was William Brewster's prayer as they began the festival. They had so much for which to thank God for providing all their needs, his provision of squanto, their teacher, guide, and friend, that would see them through those critical early winters. By the end of the 19th century, Thanksgiving Day had become an institution throughout New England, and it was officially proclaimed as a national holiday by President Abraham Lincoln on October 3rd of 1863. He said, quote, No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. I do, therefore, invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday in November as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heaven. Could you imagine a president saying that kind of thing today? Well, traditionally, it was celebrated on the last Thursday in November, but FDR changed the celebration to the third Thursday in November to give more shopping time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And at that point, Congress enacted the fourth Thursday compromise. And ever since this pragmatic and commercial approach to Thanksgiving was promoted, its original meaning has been steadily lost. So as we approach this holiday, which originally was observed to acknowledge the provision of God, let us also make this national holiday a very special time to thank Him for our own provision, for our families, our friends, our sustenance, and above all else, for our redemption in His Son.
1: Awesome history lesson. And I love how detailed you were and that, I mean, we were taught, you know, in in school, the natives and the pilgrims they get together and they have a big feast and that's pretty well where it was left but the added aspect of religion and thanksgiving to god and all the detail surrounding it makes it a little bit more vivid and a little bit more real so i wouldn't say that you were necessarily arguing anything right then i think what was on your heart was to explore What really Thanksgiving was, and and could be now, as we remember that. So I'm going to ask a couple questions to maybe draw some implications out of that. Now, so my my first question is: Okay, I was at a Thanksgiving pot potluck at lunch today at my work, and we went around and we said what we were thankful for. Why is going around and doing that, which is what a lot of people do at Thanksgiving, why does that not have as much significance whenever the thanks of it being to God is taken out of it?
0: Well, I mean, I, I think that you take away the significance when you give thanks for it, but you don't acknowledge where it comes from, because people have different views on a higher power, right? Uh, some people will say, oh, I, you know, I'm thankful for this but they think that they got it themselves. They don't, they don't recognize that God gave it to them, that there, there is a creator of the universe that is sovereign over his creation, and those things that, that you have, that, that you received, and you're saying that you're thankful for, he gave those to you. You know, there's a tendency to forget about that whenever we leave God out of the equation. And growing up, for me, that's the way that Thanksgiving was taught. You know, it's a a day to, you know, be thankful for your possessions. But this was public school in Colorado, in Boulder, of all places. So (laughs) they definitely didn't say, you're thankful to God for those things. And, you know, I thought it was just well, you know, yeah, I'm thankful that we have a big fat turkey, and I get to eat a ton of it, and, you know, watch watch some football on TV, and God never even entered the picture. So I think that that can lead to a geocentric view, like everything is of the earth, everything is of man, and God is not even in the picture.
1: Yeah, uh, something that's Stuck out to me was whenever you said that, yeah, I'm thankful for it, but you know, I did it, right? right? It, and that—that's not actually being thankful for anything. I don't see how you could plausibly have thanks unto yourself, right? The, the the idea of giving thanks is reaching outside of yourself, and so the very me-centered culture that we have now, and we say you know, I'm thankful for for blah 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 and not acknowledging who to be thankful for, well that's not really thanks. That's just being happy with your circumstance. So that, that spoke to me right there. So let's let's get something on the ground. So in light of of what we just learned about the history of Thanksgiving and that we can't just go around and say we're thankful for this and not give acknowledgement to where it came from. How is a family going to recenter their thanksgiving on God in a practical way?
0: Uh, I mean, if you're talking about how a family is going to do it, I think that it begins with uh, with the mother and father and the. You know, I'm not trying to be sexist in any way, but I believe that the Bible teaches that God has placed the man as the spiritual head over the family. So, for you and me, Brett, as husbands, and not as fathers yet, but uh, someday, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be there, we have that responsibility on us to put that focus on God. And for me, growing up, this isn't something that was commonplace in my house. My, My dad was not is not uh, a man of faith, but I, I do remember there was a, a man I knew out in California who was a pastor over a church called The Church in Long Beach, and uh, that, that was the name of it, The Church of Long Beach. His name was John Canada, and he, he told me about how his, da- his dad taught him how to pray and taught him how to be a man of prayer, and he said, you know, there was no lesson of, like, this is how you pray. But the way that his dad taught him was that his dad prayed. And his dad prayed at the table. His dad prayed privately. And he, he saw him and he heard him praying. And that example uh, was something that, you know, he, gra- he grasped onto. That's, that's the way that he learned to interact with God and to, to be a man of prayer himself. And so I think that's, that's where it all starts. And. You know, we talk about what we've lost as a nation. That's because of what we've lost as families. Families are the building blocks of any nation. And so if we look around at America and we say, oh, gee, America has lost the original meaning of thanksgiving. No one's grateful to God anymore. Well, follow that down the line. And what does that mean for the American family? That means that families have lost that men and women who are, you know, the men who are the spiritual leaders of the household, clearly that indicates that they are not uh, being men of faith uh, in the way that God would want them to.
1: Yeah, I think I would like to put a pin in that, because I think that would be a great topic to come back to in a future episode. Life just melds together, and so Thanksgiving isn't just Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. It's also made up of so many other things, which you just touched on, one of them being family. And I would love it if we came back to that. But we'll put a pin in that. Where are you going to go next week?
0: Uh, So next week, we are going to continue the the holiday theme here. And, you know, we, we think about Thanksgiving and then Christmas. But actually, there's a holiday in between there called Hanukkah which we as followers of Christ, in America at least, the church, for the most part, is Gentile. And partly due to what's happened in church history and just partly due to the attitudes of the contemporary Christian church, we've lost the fact that Jesus was Jewish. We forget that the Messiah is Jewish, and if he were here... We we wouldn't be putting up a tree and celebrating Christmas with him. We'd be celebrating Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, just like he did in the Book of John. So, what I what I'm going to talk about with that is Israel and the Church, and I think I'm going to have a little bit more of a stronger thesis, a, a little bit more of an argument that I want to contend for. Um, in that, you know, I I do want people to recognize that the Jews are still God's people, that his promises to them still stand, that he never took them away from the Jews, that, you know, the promises he gave to them, he didn't take away from them and give to the Church. They still stand, and they're still going to come into place one day. So I I think that's uh, where I'm going to go with with our next episode. I'm really excited about that one.
1: So that's that's it for our thesis, and now we have our first listener Semitic question and this question comes from a guy named Kyle and Kyle says how do you justify any time away from soul dedication to the gospel and so that might be studying the scriptures or serving others or prayer or anything that's that's wrapped up in that and so what he's asking is uh, the examples that he gave was how do you justify, Spending time with entertainment or even spending time with your job, whatever, it's not a gospel issue. I would love to get your thoughts on it.
0: Well, I'd love to get your thoughts on it, but um, I'll just kind of briefly give mine. First of all, he talks about spending time on your job. How do you justify that? You got to eat to live. You know, uh, if you look at Paul's ministry, Paul, he says in 1 Corinthians, he supported himself, he worked as a tent maker he you know they they he was a missionary going around to all these different churches and some churches did give him gifts but it, it, he he wasn't a salaried you know church planning pastor with a with a 401k and you know benefits and all that kind of stuff he didn't have a salary he worked to support himself he worked with his own hands and he would go into the synagogues, he would go into the squares, and he would share the gospel. So he was what is called today bivocational. He worked to support himself, and he administered the gospel in, in these cities where he was going. And, I, you know, I think that that is the model that Paul gives to us, and I don't think that that really merits any kind of uh, defense or any kind of justification for you know having to work because paul says if a man doesn't work he shall not eat and paul is the glowing example of that he he worked with his own hands to support himself when it comes to entertaining ourselves i I feel like a little bit of that is okay because you know we're human and we need we need breaks but it's a matter of balance like if we spend Eight hours a day working, eight hours a day sleeping. Well, there's only eight hours left in the day. If we spend five of that, you know, binge-watching shows on Netflix, and the other three, you know, we spend an hour looking at social media total throughout the day, and then the, the other two eating or whatever it is, and we don't leave any time for studying Scripture, for praying, for for uh, sharing the gospel with others, that's where... It's wrong, and that you know that's something that I honestly don't think can be uh, can be justified. But if it's if it's the opposite, where that eight hours of spare time that you have, you you study, you pray, you share the gospel, and then you know, oh, okay, maybe I'll spend an hour watching, you know, watching some TV or playing a video game or something like that. Whatever it is, then I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that because we need rest as humans. We we need rest.
1: And I think that I would affirm that things like entertainment and things like having relationships with other people, you know, just to have a relationship with them with, with no, quote-unquote, ulterior motive to bring them to Christ, that these things are good and gifts from God whenever they are Christ-honoring, right? Because God created us to enjoy things. He created us to ultimately enjoy him but he gives us these gifts that we we find pleasure in and as long as we do it in a Christ-honoring way and we they don't become idols in our lives if as long as we don't overindulge then they are good things and we shouldn't feel bad about it we we always want to make sure that that these extra if you want to call them extra things outside of the gospel that they are not detracting from it, but that we are enjoying the gifts that God has given us. So we shouldn't feel bad. Oh, I sat down, and I just had a meal with someone, and we just laughed and and whatever. Or, you know what, I sat down, and I watched an hour-long TV show tonight. We shouldn't feel bad about that, as long as that's not being elevated above what the gospel is. Yeah. Because it's it's all a gift from God.
0: Yeah. I agree with you. And that's an excellent question, Kyle. I I appreciate you, um, posing that. And, uh, hopefully we help to answer it. If not, write us again, tell us what you think. And because I said, write us again, I think that means we've come to the end of our time.
1: I think that was the code word today.
0: I think so. Um, so, uh, any final thoughts that you want to, uh, to give to wrap this up here, Brett?
1: My final thoughts, uh, have to do with looking forward I'm, I'm looking very much forward to what we're going to do with Hanukkah what we're going to do with Christmas keep sending in questions we've started having questions roll in keep it coming we want to make sure that we have great questions to answer while we're on the air and we're, we're not doing this just to talk we're doing this to engage and to hopefully help people out think through some things in different ways double check what you're how you're thinking about something so that's my final thought
0: awesome and uh, we'll see you next time alright see ya